on March 18, 1990, the most audacious art heist of all time took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Two men dressed as police officers were admitted into the building by security, claiming to be responding to a disturbance call. In 81 minutes, 13 pieces of art were stolen. Among the portraits stripped from their frames were works by Vermeer, Degas, and Rembrandt. Estimated at half a billion dollars, the heist has been categorized as the largest and most frustrating of all time. Theories of their whereabouts and those who perpetrated the crime are abundant. In this podcast series, we will dig as deep as possible into the case, the theories, and the social and economic impact the greatest unsolved art heist of all time had on the community. This is Empty Frames. Welcome back to Empty Frames. I'm Tim, here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? Well, you don't really hear that sentence very often, but I'm glad. I'm so glad that you got to say that. Welcome back to Empty Frames. We have a remarkable episode coming up, an incredible conversation with two amazing people who have picked up the gauntlet in the search for the stolen artwork from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. That excites me. What excites you, Tim? How are you? I'm doing great over here. I am excited about a bonus episode of Empty Frames. So this episode aired a couple of weeks ago over on one of our other podcasts, Crawl Space. There's links in the show notes to Crawl Space and also Missing. We do another show about missing people called Missing. But this episode, Lance, is with Eric Ulis and Stephanie Rabinowitz again. They were guests on our last episode, which is over a year ago now. And they're here again because they've got some really interesting information. So you probably want to check out the last episode we did with Stephanie and Eric. But to catch you up real quick, Stephanie actually dated one of the suspects in the Gardner heist. Not only did she date the suspect, but she kept a diary of her time dating him with some detailed entries that after reading on the last time we spoke with the both of them, he presented the information to us. And there's nothing definitive about her saying my boyfriend or my ex ex-boyfriend was involved in this crime, but there were factors that might have implicated him in being in that area at the time, or the fact that he asked her to be his alibi when the FBI actually approached him about this. So what he was doing was asking her to lie to the authorities about his whereabouts that night. She wasn't with him. So she said, I'm not going to lie, which was probably the biggest bombshell the first time we spoke to them. And I don't know if what we have in this episode is as big of a bombshell. We have to wait until some test results come back. But this this is a pretty big development. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, Eric Eulis has been working on the Gardner heist for a while. He also has written a book about the D.B. Cooper case, and he's gotten into JFK a little bit and all sorts of mysteries. And you can find out more about Eric at ericulis.com, link in the show notes. And he is a great guest um, because he dives really deep and really tries to get to the bottom. And the bottom of this for Eric and Stephanie was going to 
Los Angeles and where Brian McDevitt used to live and searching the fireplace to see if he could have burnt the gardener art. Now, I know all of this sounds very circumstantial. All of the what ifs. You know, Brian McDevitt being a part of this. What if he took it here? What if he did this? Why was he even involved in the heist in the first place? But Eric's got answers for those. Some of them are theoretical. Some of them actually are backed up by facts. Now, the reason for him being in this house, I'm not going to give anything away, was based on something that Brian had said to a friend which was verified by that friend to Eric. When Eric went into the home, the odds of something being burned in that fireplace and the ashes still there for over 30 years was very, very slim. So that was like our biggest hangup, I think, when we asked him, like, why in the world would there still be ashes in there? And there was such a perfectly logical solution to that. And that it impressed me so much. Yeah, it's very interesting. And uh, I hope everybody really enjoys this conversation. Tim, this one is such a page turner as far as how listenable it is. And sometimes these episodes get broken up by ads. And if one wanted to listen to this page turner of an episode without the ads, plus all that other content that you just mentioned, where would they go? Well, our dear listeners can find Crawlspace Premium on Apple Podcasts. They can subscribe. It's $4.99 per month. You get ad-free episodes, you get early releases, and you get our weekly bonus show, which everybody loves. And if you're not an Apple Podcasts user, you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and sign up for the same product there. And Tim, you know what I'm hoping is not burned up and now ashes in a fireplace in LA? What's that? Our social media. Is that still floating around out there? Jeez, well, I guess that'd be That'd be difficult to burn. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's still out there. You can follow us at Crawl Space Podcast or Crawl Space Pod. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We will be right back. We're going to break quick for commercial, and we'll be right back with Eric and Stephanie. Welcome back to the podcast, Stephanie and Eric. How are you both doing today? Doing great. Doing well, yeah. It's so good to see you guys again. We had spoken a little while ago about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, the connection that you have, Stephanie and Eric. Now this is your mission to try to figure out what happened to those stolen paintings. We've been talking a little bit on the side, like offline about some developments. But before we get into that, can you just bring people up to speed about who the two of you are and how this is all kind of connected to the Gardner heist? I am Stephanie and I was dating Brian McDevitt at the time time that the heist took place. My name is Eric Ulis. Uh, I'm somebody that's been investigating this case for a little while now. I've got a history of investigating other cold cases, in particular the D.B. Cooper case. Uh, headlined a History Channel show about the D.B. Cooper case. I've also been on Expedition I know with Josh Gates related to that. was part of a Netflix show that came out last year. So this has been sort of my forte for a while. And I became interested in the Isabel Stewart Garden Museum heist a handful of years ago and in particular became interested in Brian McDevitt as a suspect, which ultimately led me to Stephanie. As Stephanie mentioned, she dated Brian at the time. And I found her to be significantly important uh, to, to my investigation. And I've said all along, you may recall in the previous podcast that I mentioned that I believe that Stephanie may actually possess some bit of information that's actually critically important, but is not aware of that. And I think that that's actually the truth. I think that's that's what we're dealing with here. 
there's quite a bit of stuff that she's got written in journals that she kept, daily journals that she kept during that time, uh, which chronicled a number of things related to her and Brian. Could we just catch up a little bit on the diary and a little bit about Brian? Now, Brian was known as one of the suspects in the case. Yeah, he was. I didn't know anything about it. Obviously, I was writing in my journals, very clear, clean thinking, and I guess just keeping track of my daily life, which was actually very innocent because I didn't know what was going on. Just a, a quick overview. Brian and Stephanie met in July of 1989. So this is, you know, seven, eight months or so before the heist. Brian passed himself off to Stephanie as a screenwriter for the Wonder Years and a writer for some other television programs and scripts and things of this nature. So that's who Stephanie thought Brian was. They started dating probably a month or so after they uh, met, in, again, in July of 89. And fortunately for us, Stephanie kept a diary, kept a daily journal, which I'm not clear if Brian was aware that these journals were being kept. There's nothing to indicate that he was aware. But very importantly, Stephanie was dating Brian at the time of the heist, which of course was March 18, 1990. And there are actually diary entries from, you know, obviously the days leading up to March 18. There are actually an entry for March 18th itself and then a period of time thereafter. So that's critically important in terms of helping piece together what was going on there. Brian later moved to LA about two and a half months after the heist, it was around June 1st. And at this time, they basically were no longer dating, but they still kept in contact, telephone, that kind of thing. Stephanie separately moved to LA in September of 1991. Again, they weren't dating or anything, but they maintained contact and would go and catch movies movies and that kind of thing together while living in LA. But uh, Brian indeed was a suspect. Stephanie was unaware of his background, which included a failed attempt to rob the Hyde Museum in Glens Falls, New York, 10 years earlier in 1980, which was remarkably similar to what ended up transpiring at the Gardner Museum. Uh, so that is the reason why the FBI became interested in Brian and Brian became a suspect in the FBI's orbit uh, early on. So that's just kind of a little bit about that. I will say that it was in June of 1992 where everything kind of came out publicly. Uh, there was a New York Times article that was written about Brian's perspective involvement in the Gardner Museum heist. It was followed thereafter by an LA Times article, Boston Globe article. Uh, and it was at this point that we know for sure Stephanie actually learned about, you know, Brian's past. She actually first learned about it in May of 1991, May 6, 1991, which is a critical date. And this relates to an entry in her journals. But uh, that's just kind of a quick overview of who Brian was and everything. Brian ended up in 1993 fleeing to South America, Brazil, first Brazil, then ultimately to Colombia, and apparently passed away on May 27th, 1994 from some health issues. There we go. That's kind of the tall and short of Brian McDevitt. And uh, and again, of course, he's been a, an FBI suspect uh, early on for many years, uh, at least up into uh, 2005. Now, at some point, it appears that the FBI kind of decided, no, he wasn't involved. And they kind of got hooked onto this organized crime kind of thing, which I completely uh, disagree with. But that's a quick summary and overview of where we are leading up to this point. And I think we've probably asked you this before, Stephanie, but I just need to ask it again. When you were dating Brian, was there any indication that he might have had a life separate from what he was telling you and that that 
life might have been more involved in the criminal world? I had no idea. To me, he was just a writer involved with the Hollywood scene, the Writers Guild. Nothing indicated anything about theft, except like I did witness him stealing a Vespa seat. I think that was the first time I saw him steal something and I brought it up to him. We were in the car and he was so nonchalant about it. Oh yeah, I I had my eye on this Vespa seat for a long time. So I wanted to grab it before I went to LA. That was the first thing I witnessed from him that I thought, hmm. Oh, and then I did have a book that he took and lied about that. So, you know, I guess there were some lies that came up, but everything else, I believed him. Anything he said, I believed him. Vespa, like the scooter? Vespa bike, yeah, the scooter. Oh, wow. But Brian was kind of a con man, right? Did he actually have a career working as a writer in Hollywood? Well, that's what he told me. I never questioned him. I believed what he said. He did make trips to California and New York because he was going to these writing events, apparently. So that's just what I thought. I didn't question him. Yeah, this is the thing about Brian is, and it's really very interesting, is that he was not employed. No, he he was not writing for any TV shows. He wasn't writing for the New Yorker or the Atlantic or anything of that nature. He passed himself off as a writer, but uh, that story eventually fell apart. So Brian had no established form of revenue. (laughs) He and Stephanie went to Jamaica on Brian's dime in December of 1989. You know, as I noted, he moved to Hollywood and rented a house on the Hollywood Hills. This was about two and a half months after the heist. So he had money. I mean, Stephanie and, yeah. and Brian would go out regularly to dinners and movies. Yep. And you said Brian paid for all he this paid stuff. for everything, yeah. So he had some uh, revenue source coming from somewhere. Now, I should say that, you know, he was busted two or three times for shoplifting at some stores around Massachusetts in 1989. Which I had no idea. Yeah, which when he leading up to when he met Stephanie. So we know he was involved with some petty theft and petty crime and that kind of stuff as far as that goes. But nothing along the scale of what took place at Gardner, of course, not uh, the Hyde Museum attempt 10 years earlier, notwithstanding. Right. And Stephanie, he never told you about that heist. Well, you see, he told me something and I don't know if it was about that heist or I don't know which heist it was about, but he did tell me something that I was shocked about and I wrote about it that I don't fully remember, unfortunately. There's a very, very important entry into her journal. Uh, This is May 6, 1991. And she references Brian telling her something shocking and mentions that, you know, I'm I'm not even going to write it down. It's just shocking to me to learn about this. And I think it's clear that this actually has something to do with the gardener. The reason why I think it has something to do with the gardener is the way the entry is written, it, it specifically references the time when they were breaking up, when Stephanie and him were breaking up, which is precisely when the Gardner Museum heist took place. And the FBI is aware of this entry. Stephanie did supply that to him in 2004. However, I don't think the FBI fully grasped or understood the importance of it. There's a post also, or rather an entry three days later, uh, Stephanie mentioned she's afraid to say too much on the 
phone because she's afraid the FBI is listening in. Clearly, in relation to the conversation she had with Brian three days earlier, the FBI is unaware of the second entry related to that. I believe that references Brian alluding to the Gardner heist in some way. He probably didn't say, hey, I ripped off a bunch of stuff of the Gardner heist. He probably couched it a little bit differently. And I think it also alludes to what ultimately happened to the artwork. And I think we mentioned it in a previous conversation. Had you ever considered hypnosis to remember this? Yeah, I did actually. I went to a guy for hypnosis for other reasons. And then I said to him, can you try to bring me back to a certain date so I can remember a name that I was told by Brian of someone who apparently paid him to do this? And I couldn't get deep enough into that hypnosis. But if someone who's so professional could really get me under something and bring me back to when Brian told me what he told me that I wrote down or from the last time I saw him, his confession to me, that would be great if I could just, because it's in my head somewhere. I'm sure that must be frustrating trying to rack your memory from so long ago. You mentioned a trip to Jamaica. I think that was before the Gardner heist. Is it possible that he was like using credit cards, charging up restaurant bills and trips and then like never intending to pay it? Or you see a sign of cash that he had? Yeah, I'm trying to think. That's a good point. I think he used both. For me, this trip to Jamaica was just a fun trip to hang out with Brian, take a vacation and meet his friends. And that's all I knew about the whole trip. For me, it was just fun. So I didn't think anything more than that. And was there any affiliation between Brian and any of the other heist suspects that you know of? No, like I said, I didn't know anything about anything. Has anything been discovered in the meantime? I think that there may be a connection to Abbott. This is somewhat speculative, but this is why I say that. First of all, when you're looking at Brian McDevitt, it's critically important to look at Stephanie's journals, starting from basically the time she met Brian to basically the time when he was no longer alive. Actually, the last time Stephanie spoke with Brian was July 25th, 1992. So if we just focus on that period of time, July of 89 to July of 92, that three years, it's critically important. One thing that I've done, and I'm the only person who has done it, as I have read it cover to cover, and it's critically important in terms of putting context and everything to all of this. One of the things I noticed is that Brian, who was living on Beacon Hill at the time that they started dating, initially most of their contact and dating and all that kind of stuff was either at Brian's place on Beacon Hill or in downtown Boston, going out to shows and things of that nature. About two months before the heist, it suddenly flipped around and all of their uh, social time was spent in Alston, which is where Stephanie lived and which is where Rick Abbott happened to live as well. That included going to Harper's Ferry and getting out and enjoying the nightlife and those kind of things in that area. I highly suspect that Abbott was involved. We've talked about this before. I don't know exactly the nature of it all, but I've kind of thought that there's a possibility that Brian somehow came into contact with Rick Abbott at some point leading up to it. And that's ultimately where Brian would have received some of the information related to the alarm system and variety of things like that. That's an intriguing thing to notice that change in the relationship dynamics, switching from downtown to Alston. So, and again, this was the two months leading up to uh, the heist. So that is something new something that I've never talked about before. And it's something that could potentially be significant as far as establishing a relationship there with Rick. And when he stayed with me in Alston, there were a couple times he would leave early. You know, I was surprised 
he had friends in Alston because he did make a comment to me, oh, I, I do have friends in Alston. And I thought that's so weird because he's always in Boston. And why would he be in Alston besides visiting me? Also, he never introduced me to any of his friends, come to, except for the ones in Jamaica. He never introduced me to his friends in Alston. And that's where I was. It is a little strange because Alston is like a really, I mean, it's always been a community that is tight knit and small. And, you know, the music scene uh, right outside of Boston, like a lot of people know a lot of people really curious why you were never introduced to somebody in that yeah. community and he never gave me a name he just said oh i have some friends here he was so vague about it but there was a fair amount of time again that mm -hmm. last two months that brian spent in alston with stephanie a good deal of the time and then other times like stephanie said he would be gone for several hours and then just come back to her place or what have you and again brian did importantly reference the fact that he did have a friend or friends he had contacts in alston none of which stephanie knew about no. and again this this is something also that the FBI is unaware of. They've never heard this before. This is new stuff and new information. And the only reason that this really came out is because, again, I took the time to read cover to cover that three-year span, which is several hundred pages of journals. We're not talking five pages here. There's a lot of pages here. That's what a thorough investigation looks like. It's critically important in terms of putting together the narrative, what was taking place during that time. And it puts a lot of these other things in the context. I want to um, ask about the new developments I just want to ask about the possibility of Brian having faked his own death. What do you both think about that? I always thought he faked it. I've heard that he's had a death certificate, he's had hospital records, but a death certificate in Colombia or South America where he was, I don't know what it looks like to be honest, but I personally believe it can be recreated because I'm an artist myself and I can recreate anything. I can make things look real. So I just... I don't believe it. I never believed it. And the only way I personally would think, okay, this is proof is if someone, I know this sounds morbid, maybe dig the grave, get the DNA, see if he's really there. Anyone can create anything, a death certificate, a driver's license. Well, now the licenses are more complicated, but before they're easy to tamper with. Yeah. I personally think he's, he's likely dead. Now he is. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, because he yeah. apparently died on May 27th, right. 2004. What is interesting about this, however, is that the FBI did interview Stephanie very, very briefly in July of 1992 when she was living in L.A. And there was no contact with the FBI after that with Stephanie until May of 2004. So sometime around the beginning of May 2004, Jeff Kelly reached from the FBI, reached out, spoke to uh, Stephanie over the phone. And then on May 4th, Stephanie faxed over some information to Jeff related to some of what she had pulled from the diaries. This was the first time the FBI even realized that journals existed. They had no idea that these journals existed for 14 years after the heist, which frankly, I think kind of speaks to the FBI not being as thorough as they should have been in terms of the investigation of the McDevitt angle and, and Stephanie's tie-in and all these other kind of things. My point is, is that the timing of that is very interesting because the facts that Stephanie sent over to the FBI to Jeff was May 4th. 
Brian apparently died 23 days later, May 27th of the same year, 2004. So it is interesting that the timing happens to correlate right when the FBI started sniffing around Brian again and specifically talking to Stephanie. And then again, uh, several months later, they actually flew out. Jeff flew out to Seattle with a partner and interviewed Stephanie at the FBI field office. But having said that, putting that kind of the timing aside, which is a little coincidental, I personally believe Brian likely did die May 27th of uh, 2004. Was he suffering from a long illness? Was there some lead up to uh, his death or was it kind of sudden? Apparently he had uh, contracted HIV and that led to pneumonia. So he had some Mm -hmm. complications related to HIV. Of course, this was... 2004, you know, they didn't have the types of medicines and things that we have nowadays. And of course, at this time, he's also living in Medellin, Colombia, which is not exactly, you know, the Mayo Clinic or something. So that's the story as far as we understand it with respect to what happened to Brian. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. I would love to ask you about what has been going on in the past few months with you both. Well, there have been what I consider significant developments related to Brian McDevitt and my investigation into Brian, along with Stephanie, over the last year, because I believe it's been a year since we've talked, uh, at least on the podcast, about this. Specifically, uh, I think it's highly likely that Brian was involved, and he was involved with a guy named Steve Donahue. It's a friend of Brian's who lived in Jamaica, whom Stephanie met while they were in Jamaica. I've got pictures of Brian. I've got pictures of Steve Donahue and so forth. Just as a sidebar here, I can put Steve in Boston 13 days before the heist from Jamaica. So uh, something that the FBI, I don't think fully understands or grasps the importance of that as well. Ultimately, via interviewing and talking with uh, a handful of people that knew Brian personally in California, and of course, reading cover to cover Stephanie's writings and talking with her at length about this, I believe that Brian basically had a half-baked plan, and that was for him and Steve to rip off the art from the Gardner Museum, and ultimately they were going to sell the artwork to a Jamaican drug ring. And ultimately, they were unsuccessful for a couple of reasons. One, because obviously, I don't know if they realized that they were ripping off $200 million worth of art, but they ripped off what was then valued at $200 million. And of course, it was radioactive at that point. So I think Brian initially ripping off the art, probably without them even knowing, meaning the folks, the contacts in Jamaica, you know, realized that he was not going to be able to unload the art immediately after that. What created a second very big problem for Brian was that on April 26, 1990, that Jamaican drug ring was busted. Specifically, there was a museum in Italy called the Batona Museum. And in 1987, October of 1987, there was $8.2 million worth of art ripped off from the museum in Italy. That artwork was shipped to London. And then from London, it was crated and shipped to Jamaica. And obviously, they had somebody in customs in Jamaica on the take because the stuff passed through to Jamaica. The artwork was procured by this drug ring that I'm talking about, and it was used as collateral. The artwork was used as collateral. The artwork was recovered 39 days after the Garden Museum heist. So if Brian was looking at this international drug ring to essentially sell the artwork to them for the purposes of 
using as collateral, kind of like the Italian museum stuff, is game over 39 days later. So I think that that created a problem where Brian, where he no longer had a way to get rid of the artwork. Of course, the FBI was sniffing around this guy as well at the same time. And I believe that ultimately what ended up happening is, again, Brian, who in the interim had moved to L.A. shortly after the heist, took the artwork with him there. I think Brian basically, for lack of a better term, panicked. I think he realized, you know what, I'm stuck with this stuff and I could end up getting caught with it red handed and spend 40 years in prison. So I believe that ultimately the artwork was destroyed It was burned in his fireplace. He had a home in the Hollywood Hills, and I believe it was burned in the fireplace. This is interesting as well. And I know I'm doing a lot of talking here, but it's kind of important to give a little bit of background here. One of the people that I spoke with with, was a guy that worked with Brian in L.A., a guy named Ben Pollack. Ben Pollack, whom Stephanie met as well, talks about Brian and he working together in a collaborative effort for the purposes of writing some scripts that they were attempting to sell to a contact that Ben had uh, with uh, a network in L.A. And they were having a hard time coming up with anything that was really working. They looked at some of Brian's old scripts and some of what Ben had written. And so Ben relayed to me a fascinating story of one of their conversations where Brian all of a sudden proposed a script, proposed an idea centered around an art theft. And essentially what the story was, the script that Brian came up with, and Ben said you could tell that he was really passionate when he was they were discussing this script idea. Basically, it was the story of a couple of guys who ripped off a museum, a bunch of artwork, and they were actually shocked that they were successful at it. You know, they kind of like succeeded without fully expecting to succeed, but it ended up being a nightmare because they didn't know what to do with the artwork. They had tried to arrange to sell it to some, you know, guy in Germany, apparently, and apparently had flown to Germany for the purposes of trying to sell it, but it fell through, didn't work out or whatever. And ultimately, these bumbling thieves, you know, with this half-baked idea, ultimately decided to burn the artwork in a cave. That's what the script says. They burn the artwork in a cave. However, there is like one or two metal statues that couldn't be burned. So they had, they were buried at the same time the artwork was burned. That's the script. And I think that that is basically art mimicking true life. I think that that is largely what happened. Brian's essentially retelling what happened with the Gardner Museum heist. And so I firmly believe that the artwork was burned in the fireplace in the Hollywood Hills home. And that's the sad story of that. Now we've got the bronze finial. We have the bronze Chinese coup as well, which clearly wouldn't have been burned. They're out there somewhere. You know, they're going to be around forever. They're not going anywhere. Uh, But as to the other stuff that has been burned and what has been fascinating is that I have actually been to that house a couple of times. I've looked at the fireplace and I've actually pulled out ash and some other stuff from a portion of the fireplace that may actually prove 
that what happened to the art was that it was burned in the fireplace. Wow. So you mentioned this drug ring in Jamaica, and they had art that was brought in from, I think you said, England to Jamaica, and they must have had someone on the take because it cleared customs in Jamaica? That's correct. And then there was an arrest made? That's correct. It's been written about. The artwork that was originally ripped off in Italy in October of 1987 was recovered in April of 1990. The international drug ring that used this artwork as collateral, they paid for it and procured the artwork and used it as collateral in their drug dealings, that was busted. And there were few people that were arrested. Interestingly, the Italian police, after their artwork was recovered, said that they know who actually stole the artwork from the Italian museum. However, those people had fled to South America. Why that's interesting is because that's exactly where Brian fled also in 1993 after he was concerned about being indicted uh, by a, a grand jury from Boston in Boston. But yes, that did happen. And again, that artwork was recovered in Jamaica. $8.2 million worth of artwork was recovered in Jamaica, April 26, 1990, 39 days after the Garden Museum heist. And Brian and his friend Steve had a lot of dealings with Jamaica, especially Steve, because Steve lived in Jamaica. And, you know, Brian traveled there, obviously brought Stephanie there in, you know, December of 1989, a few months before the heist. So I believe that probably Steve had the connection or knew somebody there and that that was ultimately the plan that they had. But of course, it all fell through because of two things. One, the value of the heist to begin with, $200 million. I mean, if they'd ripped off a $5 million painting or something, okay, maybe it shows up on the news, maybe it doesn't, then, you know, they're all done with it. $200 million was a very big problem. I mean, it still was radioactive, of course, which delayed things. And then, of course, you know, it just so happens that 39 days later, it falls apart. Interestingly, on April 11th of 1990, a few weeks after the heist, Stephanie does reference in her journals that Brian appears to be having problems at his work. We know Brian didn't have work. <laughs> so speculating, this is three weeks after the heist, that references some of the challenges, some of the problems that Brian was have, you know, with this artwork, because I'm sure he didn't want to hold on to it for too terribly long. And of course, two weeks after that, the whole thing just shot the high hell. And this screenplay was never actually written, right? That is correct. It was never written. Uh, it was just something, an idea that Ben Pollock and Brian had discussed. I won't get into the details of, you know, the production house and network they were working with. But yeah, ultimately was never sold, never produced or anything else. But it's just notable in retrospect after the fact that this is the story that Brian came up with and the similarities, the metal statues that had to be buried, the half-baked museum theft that these two guys were actually shocked that they were successful at, you know, and then the problems of now what do we do with it? We can't sell it to anybody. And ultimately deciding you know, we, we, have, we have no choice but to just destroy it and burn it. I think is a little bit more than just a brilliant screenplay from Brian McDevitt. Again, I think it's art mimicking life. And was this information that you received directly from this Ben Pollock? Yes. And also Ben told me he provided this story to the FBI. So the FBI is aware of this story, but as 
appears to be typical with this case here, the FBI just didn't do a very good job of vetting the Brian McDevitt story. Brian tried ripping off the Hyde Museum 10 years earlier. The FBI never interviewed the police chief in Glens Falls, New York, who arrested Brian at that time and took the confession from Brian at that time and provided details remarkably similar to what ended up happening at Gardner. They never interviewed the museum director of the Hyde Museum at that point. It took them two years and four months to even interview Stephanie. Brian had provided Stephanie as an alibi and it took 28 months before the FBI even approached her to interview her and had a 15 minute conversation. And it took 14 years before Stephanie happened to mention with Jeff, oh yeah, by the way, I've got journals. Journals which speak to the fact that the very day that the heist took place, Stephanie could not have been an alibi because Brian had lied to her and said he was in New York City at the Writers Guild, an event that didn't take place till a month later. Brian later admitted that he actually was in Boston and had no alibi. But it's interesting to note that when Brian originally spoke with the FBI, he provided Stephanie as an alibi for the night of the heist. So Brian perjured himself by testifying to the FBI. One has to ask the question, is this the way an innocent person acts? If Brian was not involved with the Gardner Museum, he's out there doing whatever he's doing on the weekend. Why concoct the lie and put yourself in legal jeopardy by perjuring yourself by saying, I was with Stephanie? I should note when Brian spoke with Stephanie in June of 1992, when the FBI started finally coming around, Brian actually asked Stephanie to lie to the FBI and provide a reference as an alibi. And again, this is all written in yeah. the journals. He came to my work and asked me, to go join him for lunch. He did this a few times. You know, we're having lunch, a nice time. And then he popped the question, I need a favor. Can you tell the FBI that you were with me because I need an alibi? And he's asked me that twice. And I couldn't do it because I wasn't going to lie to them. And I have to say his demeanor had changed after I said, no, there's no way I'm doing this. He became so angry and pissed. He was pissed. Yeah, he asked twice, but I wouldn't do it. Wow. Well, good for you. Stephanie, did you ever meet Steve? Yeah, he was in uh, Jamaica. We all hung out in Jamaica. So that's the first time I met him. What did Steve do for work? <laughs> the same thing Brian did for work. <laughs> I met all his friends in Jamaica. I met Jeff, Steve, and Andy. Steve and Jeff and Brian and myself and their girlfriends. We hung out every day, all day long. And to me, they were just his friends. I had no idea. And I didn't learn till later after my trip to Jamaica. I learned that I was hanging out with con men in Jamaica and I had no idea. One thing that's oh, yeah. critically important to mention here, Steve, Steve lived in Jamaica. And again, I think he was the point person. Steve did actually travel to LA and Ben Pollock had met Steve and obviously Brian talked with Steve there. But importantly, Stephanie has a writing in her journal from March 5th of 1990. So this is 13 days before the heist, Steve's in Boston. That was the first time that, and the only time that Stephanie saw Steve in Boston meeting with Brian. Again, Stephanie met Brian in July of 89. So by the time that they go to Jamaica, Stephanie and Brian have known each other five months. It's in Jamaica where she meets Steve, among other friends. They, of course, come back in December. 
So then fast forward another three months, all of a sudden, 13 days before the heist, who is in Boston from Jamaica? Steve. Do you know how long he was in Boston? Unfortunately, there's nothing in her journal that references that at all. Okay. But I do know the time immediately preceding the heist, during the heist and after the heist, Brian was gone a lot. That actually mm-hmm. created a lot of problems with Stephanie as well, because all of a sudden he's not calling, unavailable. What's Brian doing? Is he screwing around with somebody else? That kind of thing. And ultimately, that's when their relationship just fell apart. So their relationship fell apart literally right at the time of the heist. And that's critically important when we factor in the other entry in her journal that I mentioned in 1991, where Brian references that period of time, the period of time when they broke up, basically saying that he was involved in some stuff. He didn't want to get Stephanie involved. I think it's at that point that Brian actually, in so many words, let Stephanie know that he he was involved in this thing. Probably wasn't, again, specific about the details. Probably didn't mention Isabella Gardner Museum. But the point is, nonetheless, this is when Stephanie became aware of kind of the true tenor of who Brian McDevitt was. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. I've been dying to know because you sent pictures of what you pulled out of the fireplace. How do you know that this is directly from Brian McDevitt? What has happened in that location in the meantime? How, how do you know this isn't just somebody else's ashes? I knew that Brian had a pretty big kind of rock fireplace at the Hollywood Hills home. I'd heard about that. I hadn't been to the house, but I'd heard about it. And I think probably from Stephanie. And so when I heard the story from Ben about the artwork being burned, I thought artwork being burned in a cave, the rock fireplace. I'm like, that's what happened to the artwork. So I immediately start thinking, what are the odds there's some ash or debris from 30 years ago still in that fireplace, 30 two, 33 years ago, still in the fireplace. So I was in LA and uh, just dropped by and knocked on the door. I mean, this is the coldest of cold calls. And this couple, this young couple comes to the door and I said, my name is Eric and you're not going to believe this story, but here we go. <laughs> so I just told them what my speculation is because this was Brian's former home. It just so happens they were familiar with the Gardner Museum heist because the woman was from Boston. You know, we had a great conversation. These are the current homeowners. They owned the house for seven years. They bought it directly from the gentleman who had leased the house out to Brian years earlier. So I was talking about, you know, the yard and the fireplace and all kinds of things, and in particular, the fireplace. And I asked him, I said, have you cleaned your fireplace? In particular, the chimney part, because I thought, you know, if the artwork was burned there, that there may be residue left over from the artwork. Because it's important to remember when you're dealing with oil paints, you know, back then during the old days or whatever, they contained metals like lead and zinc. They also contain minerals like cinnabar, which has a high mercury content. The lead and the zinc, that stuff, it doesn't burn away. You know, if you've got a painting and you burn it up, you're not burning the metal away. There's gonna, There should be traces of those metals still around. Moreover, if there's something like that in a fireplace, one has to ask, what were you burning in the fireplace that would leave traces of you know, lead and zinc and 
perhaps mercury, cinnabar, things like that. It would be reasonable to deduce that there had been artwork burned there. So I asked them about if they had cleaned the chimney and they said, unfortunately, they had cleaned the chimney. They had a professional chimney sweep come by, clean it out and everything else. And I was feeling like, ah, darn, that's a, you know, that would have been something interesting to check into. But the guy said, however, there's something that you may find interesting. In the back of the chimney on the bottom, there's a little metal flap. It's about yay big that you could lift up and it revealed a chamber. And basically, uh, in the old days, you would sweep the ash from the fireplace down into that chamber. Then you could go outside and you could open a back door and actually remove the ash from the chamber. Why this is important is that that chamber had been blocked off with a gas line. They had dragged a natural gas line into the fireplace there. It had blocked off the chamber. So the chamber had not been used for decades really since the time that Brian was around there, living there 90 to 93. So I thought, well, this is interesting because there may be ash in that chamber from that period of time that has been untouched for 30 something years. I arranged with the owners to come back at a later date and access that chamber and see if there's anything in there and if there is stuff in there, pull it out and have it analyzed. Obviously, I've been keeping Stephanie in the loop with all of this stuff. So recently, this has only been a couple of weeks now or a week and a half or something. uh, We actually traveled to L.A., went back to the house, met with the homeowners, and I got access to the fireplace in the chamber. And sure enough, there was debris, there was ash, there was stuff in the chamber, some of which I removed. And it's currently being analyzed under an electron microscope to get a chemical signature for the ash and a couple of the other things that came out of there to see if there's any of those trace metals or things of that nature. But one of the more interesting, intriguing things that came out of there was a fair amount of this. I don't know if you can see this here. I do not know what this is. There's a bag full of it. I don't know what it is. I don't really even want to speculate, but this was in that chamber. Highly unusual one way or the other. In addition to ash, so there's a fair amount of ash here, as well as this clumped up kind of debris, kind of clumpy. So I sent off samples of the odd paper material, as well as the ash and the clump debris to be analyzed under an electron microscope. I should know sometime this week what we're dealing with as far as that goes. But the point of the matter is this is all very intriguing and at a minimum appears to be highly unusual for a fireplace. I mean, regardless of what it is, it's highly unusual. So that's why I can say with a reasonable degree of certainty that we're dealing with ash and debris and items in that chamber that entered that area, likely around that period of time when Brian was living there. The current homeowners have never accessed that chamber before. I'm the first person. I got only a portion of the stuff out of there. It was very hard to access this chamber area. And I kind of sliced my arm up doing it, actually. Stephanie and I have arranged with the homeowners that depending upon what we find from the electron microscope analysis, I may end up going back and just retrieving everything out of there and seeing what we're working with. I highly suspect that what we're dealing with here are, sadly enough, the gardener work. This is it. This is part of the the gardener work. We'll see. You know, I'm a man that believes in science and math and all that stuff, so we'll let the science speak for itself. But one way or the other, 
I'm very, very intrigued to learn about this stuff, this material here, what this is, because it's very, very interesting. That's the stuff that we came up with out of the uh, fireplace. And we filmed it. We filmed the whole thing there with the homeowner and me getting in there, digging, pulling this crap out. That's what we're dealing with. That is exciting. Can you hold up that item again, maybe a little closer to the camera? That is really interesting. What is this? I actually, I don't know what it is. I really don't. I mean, I've looked at it at length. I've tried to figure it out. I'm having it analyzed and we'll see. We'll see what the significance, whether it's a piece of canvas or whether it's some sort of uh, something to help the artwork burn, you know, that's added to it. We'll let the electron microscope and all that speak for itself. You know, there's a clump of this. At least I got all of it that I could grab, you know, kind of the way I had to arch my hand back there. Fascinating stuff. So we'll see. This is, uh, I think, very interesting, especially in light of everything else that has come out. And I'll say that I am more convinced than ever that Brian was involved in this thing with Donahue, Steve Donahue, and that the FBI and Anthony Amore and those guys are just barking up the wrong tree looking at this, you know, organized crime or street, you know, crime angle or what have you. Tell me a little bit more about the texture of those items. It looks like you have ash and then the more solid item, I guess, has been burnt. It must have been more solid than whatever turned into ash before it was burnt. So it's kind of like a clump material. So I don't know if it's like a petrified Duralog kind of thing or ash. This stuff has been sitting there for decades. So it's obviously kind of compact. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of hard. Uh, but it's something sort of clumpy and it does appear to be a mixture of ash and some other stuff. So I just don't know uh, what that is that's being analyzed. And then, of course, there's, you know, this stuff as well, the ash as well, which is just straight up ash. The thing is that, you know, when you think about burning the artwork, I don't know. I don't know how flammable the artwork is. I mean, I know it's been coated with all kinds of crap and it's 400 years old. I, I don't know. I don't know if you could just take a big lighter to it and it would catch on. I don't know what the deal is. But if it was burned in that fireplace or the chamber, presumably it would have been chopped up somewhat. And, you know, there may have been some sort of accelerant or something also thrown in there to help burn this stuff. The chamber is interesting because I can't quite tell if this is the artwork worth dealing with here, that it was actually put into the chamber with some sort of accelerant or something like this. And the idea being to kind of burn it like an oven, you know, like as if it's like in a brick oven kind of thing and just incinerate the hell out of it. Or if it's a matter of maybe the stuff was burned in the fireplace and then swept down in the chamber. One thing I can say is regardless, this was found in that chamber. And this is unusual, I think, in anybody's book. Whatever the hell this stuff is, at a minimum, we can say there's unusual stuff that was found in that chamber. Yeah. Yeah. Was it like a traditional fireplace or was it one of those like LA fireplaces where you hit a switch? I, I don't know. I actually don't know. I know there's a gas line it's because it's the gas line that sort of blocked this metal flap that was pulled in, you know, a couple few decades ago. The new homeowners, you know, it was relatively cleaned out, but they obviously had used it for natural wood. But the fireplace is pretty good size. I could climb into it to access the back and it's like, you know, got big rock kind of mantle sides and all that kind of stuff. It's a good sized fireplace, more than ample size to uh, burn some artwork if you want to burn some artwork. I know it's not the kind of thing that people want to hear. I'm of the opinion 
that that is likely what happened to the artwork. And it explains an awful lot like why nobody ever claimed the $10 million ransom or reward, why nobody's talked about it. You know, obviously Brian and Steve, by the way, is also no longer alive. Steve Donahue died as well years ago, which all kind of shady stuff. I think that that all kind of speaks to why none of this stuff has been found, why these guys didn't talk. I just think that's the sad reality. Yeah. I'm of the opinion now that of those 13 pieces that were taken, the only two that we have any hope of finding are going to be the bronze finial and the uh, Chinese coup. And you said that you're running them through some tests with some equipment. When do you expect to get the results back? Uh, it's an electron microscope. We'll know with great certainty exactly what we're dealing with here in terms of the chemical signature. Are there any trace metals or things of that nature in there? I should know by the end of this week. I just gave small samples of the ash. I tried to mix the ash up just in case that maybe a portion of the ash was the artwork and a portion was, you know, wood. You know, depending upon what comes back, that may motivate another trip to L.A. for Stephanie and uh, I to retrieve the rest of the stuff out of the uh, that cavity there. The thought of all that is just very upsetting, you know? Oh, totally. You're saying the thought of that being the artwork completely destroyed is very... Yeah, it's a really tough reality that a lot of people are going to have to face, including all of us here, because we love the romantic notion that this is going to get discovered in some air-controlled storage unit somewhere in, you know, another country, and it'll all be together, and there'll be this wonderful reuniting at the museum, but that's probably not the case. Like, I think in the back of all of our heads, we realize the odds of that are very slim, the odds of some midlife level con artist somehow pulling it off and then panicking is probably more of a reality. Yeah. It's sickening when you think about like the storm in the Sea of Galilee, which is a you know spectacular work of art. The thought of that, if this is what we're looking at here, the thought that we'll never see it again, like it's just gone. It's never coming back. I mean, there's always that hope that even though it's been 33 years and we don't know where it is, that it's like you said, buried somewhere, stuck in some attic and somebody forgot about it or who knows what happened. But the sad reality is if the McDevitt story is true here, it's just gone. It's gone forever. All that stuff is gone forever outside of the bronze. It's really disappointing. But from what I've seen and from what I've learned, I think that's what the evidence points to. But at the end of the day, we'll let the science and the electron microscope speak to the truth of it all. You know, the reality is, is I don't I don't know that the electron microscope could 1000% prove while well, that was, you know, Rembrandt we find traces of lead and zinc and that kind of thing there, it's like, well, what the hell else is it doing in there? How did it get in there? You know, I mean, I, I guess we'll, we'll just have to see. It would have been nice if the FBI and Anthony Amore in particular would have taken this stuff a little bit more seriously. Anthony knows what I'm doing here. He knows this stuff. And I have to be honest with you, I'm a little bit disappointed that, you know, he's been very flippant about it. Like I'm kind of like off on some pipe dream somewhere because of course they think they know who did it and all this other kind of stuff, but they don't know where the artwork is. And I'm just saying, I'm convinced that they don't. There is a lot of stuff that I know that they don't know. Very interesting. Wow. Cannot wait to hear more about that. At what point will you contact the FBI or, or do they already know? Honestly, I don't know. Like Anthony knows. 
Is. And Anthony's tight with, you know, Jeff Kelly over there. You know what's going on. I mean, they can call me anytime. Yeah, they want to analyze the crap. They can analyze it. You know, I mean, have at it. I honestly don't know what to say <laughs> as far as that goes. It comes back full of, you know, lead and zinc and all that kind of stuff. I don't even know what I'll do other than probably call up, you know, Boston Globe, Kelly Horn or something say, I think we got your stuff. I don't know what we'll do other than that. You mean aside from calling us and coming back on the show? Yes. <laughs> The point of the matter is, as you can see, I'm, I'm a little critical of the FBI at this point, and I'm a little critical of Anthony at this point. As many people know, I've got extensive experience with the FBI, in particular with the D.B. Cooper case. I've read tens of thousands of pages of files. I've seen all kinds of evidence and things. I understand how the FBI works, and I know firsthand that these people are not infallible. Mistakes are made, assumptions are made, and they are completely wrong. And I can point to many examples of this. So it bothers me when these guys go out there. It's been now 10 years ago that the FBI stood out there at the lectern and said, we know who did it. We don't know where the artwork is. By the way, we're not telling you who we think did it. They're keeping it some sort of secret or something like that. That's just Mickey Mouse bullshit crap. You know, it's been 10 years. You still don't know a damn thing, apparently, because we haven't heard anything about it. And it's been 33 years. I mean, at what point do you guys give it up and at least provide the names of the people who you think were involved? At what point to maybe open up some of these files and some of this information and put it out there to people? If you don't do it 33 years out and let people like me or others kind of dig into this and see what we can find out, what point do you do? Do you ever do it? I mean, I look at the D.B. Cooper case and what happened in that case, you know, eventually the files and so forth and a lot of information was released to the public and opened up because there was a forward thinking FBI agent, a guy named Larry Carr, who opened this stuff up to the public. This was in 2007. And a lot of people like myself got involved with it at that point. I can't tell you how much internet sleuths like myself have actually learned about the D.B. Cooper case, new information since that stuff was opened opened up, having literally hundreds, if not thousands of people looking into the stuff. So if we could replicate that same sort of thing with the Gardner Museum, I think there's a legitimate opportunity to actually learn a lot more about this, assuming this isn't the end result of it all. You know, one way or the other, even if this is the, is the end result, we may be able to find out additional details, maybe where those two bronze pieces are, you know? To me, it strikes me as becoming very personal as opposed to professional. And there's just no excuse for that. How the hell they didn't even know Stephanie's journals existed for 14 years is beyond comprehension. Having said all that, you know, I'm more than willing to, and I'm sure Stephanie is more than willing to provide materials and things to the FBI if they want to see that or talk with me about some of what I've picked up or learned. Well, love the passion and great work getting out there and literally digging into all of that soot and ashes. And I mean, even just communicating with the current homeowners is impressive enough to have them trust you to go into their home and then start pulling stuff out of there. So great work to the both of you. And I'm dying to find out what the results of the the testing concludes. We'll let you know what it is and, and kind of what the plan is after that. I think it's a very real possibility that Stephanie and I will be traveling to LA sometime in the near future, maybe the next month or two to, uh, you know, recover the rest of this stuff that's in that uh, chamber, that fireplace chamber. Stephanie and Eric, thank you so much for chatting with us here today and sharing this part of your journey with us. We really appreciate it. We can't wait for updates. Well, our pleasure. Our pleasure.